0: Luke chapter 11 this morning, we're going to pick up at verse 14 and a very encouraging message entitled A Warning from Jesus. How is that? I like all the positive stuff in the Bible, but we get to these other parts that are a warning. And this section is really directed at the Jewish leaders. Um, And it's interesting to see how How much we desire to be right and get it right in the ministry, and we sometimes get it wrong. We quite often get it wrong. And so um, it's so helpful just to remember to keep our eyes on the Lord. You know, when Jesus began his ministry, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I love how that just brings me back to personally is my job as a pastor. That's my job. And and through all the routines and the weekend and week out, I've shared with you of ministry it's easy to get refocused onto just church activity and forget the job. And all of church functions and ministries are to serve this purpose to bring the good news to those who are in need and to build up our lives in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this revelation of the love of God to the nation of Israel has attracted people from all around the surrounding communities but conversely it's enraged the Jewish leaders. Now that that is a puzzle to me because the, the spiritual leaders are in the business of serving people or you would think. And when the real thing comes along they should be able to say, there it is, I want in on that. If I learned anything from Pastor Chuck and serving at Calvary Costa Mesa over the years, it's simply, you know, people would come from around the world to say, tell us the secret of how God has worked here. And there are no formulas. Chuck would say, figure out what the Lord is doing and get in on it. Because you see, God wants to work. It's not as if we have to talk him into it. We're not praying and fasting for 40 days to try and beg God to work in Albany. He already wants to work. The question is, who is he going to do that work through? Are Are we able to see what that work is and cooperate with it? Or are we busy doing our own thing? Because we have lots of. Lots of ideas for ministry. There's no shortage of ideas for ministry. But we have to say, Lord, is that you? Is that really accomplishing what you want? When God did begin to work in the Jesus movement, the, the last great American church revival back in the 60s and 70s, it was so radical that young people were coming into the church by the, the tens of thousands of people. It was so radical the surrounding churches in southern California you know what they said this can't be a real work of god there's too many people coming to god what a strange response those kids were so lost there's no way god could reach them so they they even they just were suspicious Of Calvary Chapel for many years. There's got to be something wrong here. When Calvary Chapel started planting churches in Europe. Because we didn't look like the formalized churches. Of post-Christian Europe. The denominations suspected Calvary of being a cult. And now that's such a strange idea. Because now it is so Well, recognized as a genuine move of God during that time, that last time of incredible social and political breakdown in our country. And we are right there again 50 years later. And in fact, 50 years before the Jesus movement, there was a social and political breakdown. And it brought a revival in Southern California as well. The the Azusa street revival, the Pentecostal movement was started there. And so either we are on the cusp of a revival again, or this is the big breakdown of our culture. And while we are all going through our lives, we need to look around us and say, Lord, what is it that you want to do right now? Because I'll tell you, when the Jesus movement happened, no one saw it coming. No one saw it coming. It was something God wanted to do, and he was looking for somebody to do it. I personally want to be someone that is usable in God's hands, and I pray that you are as well. In this passage, we're going to look at today, Luke eleven fourteen 14 to 53. I'm going to summarize this whole last section of, of chapter 11. The religious leaders accuse Jesus of working by the power of Satan. The grace of God is so foreign to them, they don't even recognize it. And Jesus now issues some warnings Directed at them. This is not directed at the general public, but certainly the general people who are standing around can hear it. And I think it's good for all of you to know what Jesus thinks of religious leaders who are getting it wrong. The first warning that he says about them, verses 11 to 23, is. Their inability to discern the work of God. Their inability to discern the work of God. He says, or Luke writes that he was casting out a demon and it was mute. And so it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. So there it is. The common people can see it. But the religious leaders can't. Some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And a house divided against a house fails. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? but you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes Upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted, and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Beelzebub was one of the names of the Philistine god Baal or Baal. It's it's spelled B-A-A-L. You've heard of, of Baal. Which means Lord of the Flies. The Jews would often refer to Satan as Beelzebul, B U L on the end, meaning Lord of the Dwelling. So Jesus uses this illustration of a strong man guarding his house and someone else comes along and overpowers him and takes his spoils. And essentially Satan is guarding his own house. And it's an admission that Jesus is stronger and has overpowered and conquered Satan. But their accusation really is illogical because why would Satan fight against himself? A house divided against itself cannot stand a kingdom against itself. Cannot stand another warning that comes from Jesus is that even as they're seeing what Jesus is doing, they still refuse to come to him for salvation. This was something that he said several times in the gospels. They would see his power he is fulfilling the very description of the coming Messiah. And regardless of the evidence of who he was, they refused to come to him. We will not come to him and admit to him. Verse 24: when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So what Jesus is saying is, I am casting out demons. But if these that I'm serving are not then receiving me, it's going to be worse for them later on. It's, it's like we might talk about people getting off addictions. And if they don't believe on the Lord, they're just going to go to other addictions. You just trade one problem for another problem. One of my favorite scriptures in all of the New Testament, John five thirty nine and 40. And I've used this talking to the cults many times. Jesus talking to the religious leaders, and he says, you search the scriptures for you think that in them you have eternal life. In other words, just by knowing the scriptures, you think you have eternal life. And it is these which testify of me. And you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. People have said to me. Pastor Terry, I don't understand the Old Testament. Do I have to read Genesis like it's some kind of law? No, you don't have to. But I don't don't get all of that stuff in the Old Testament and the prophets. And I'll say, look, the whole Bible, all 66 books are about Jesus. How do I know that? Well, Jesus said so. I'm not, That's not just a pastor answer. That's not Sunday school answer. You know, the answer to any question in Sunday school is Jesus. But to the religious leaders, there's no new Testament yet. He says, you are searching the scriptures. And I want you to know this. They're all telling you about me. The very first mention of Jesus in the Bible is Genesis one, one. Did you know that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, chapter 1 tells us that it was Jesus with the Father and the Son who created anything. That by him was nothing made that was made. Jesus is the creator. He was only called Jesus when he was born. Elohim, the first word for God in Genesis, Genesis 1.1, is Elohim. And it's the plural form of God. God singular is El. Dual is Elo. Plural is Elohim, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were there in the work of creation. And so Jesus saying, all that you've studied, it's telling you about me, but just knowing scripture isn't enough. You then need to come to me that you might have life. The reason we study the Bible is not to know the Bible. It's to know Jesus. And so when we study the word, it's helping us to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. A third warning was very indicting against the religious leaders is that they didn't believe God's word. So they needed signs. You ask of me signs, picking up in verse 27. It happened as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said more than, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given. A sign just means a miracle. They keep asking for more and more miracles. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, and also the son of man will be given. So also the son of man will be given to this generation. The queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Then Jonah is here. So when we're reading through the scripture, we have all these details, a lot of information. I talked to the men about this yesterday. The key to simple, clear Bible study is as you're reading through the section, before you get lost in the details, say, what is the main point here? There is a main point of all of this story. And the story is that the people in their hearts they can't believe God's word and because they can't believe God's word they need another miracle another sign to excitement that uh, to excite them and help them believe and that's the danger of getting caught up in more signs and wonders various christian movements who get hyper focused on signs and wonders that's the danger of it there's often a greater focus on miracles and very little focus on the word of God. But the whole purpose of miracles is for us to learn to trust God so that we will go then to his word and just believe him. Just believe him. And if we go through our Christian life, never coming to a place where we just believe God, then that's an indication that something's wrong miracles are fine i we've all experienced miracles healings or different financial provisions but i'm not going to live day to day unless i can't trust god unless i get another sign or wonder and jesus is talking about the people the people of Nineveh. Now that is an extremely, that was an extremely corrupt and vile pagan culture, Nineveh. And so God sent Jonah to preach to them. Jonah, you know, the story, he didn't want to go. So he runs away from God, gets swallowed by a fish for three days and nights. And by the way, it wasn't allegorical. It really happened. And when he then, he repented and said he would obey God and go to Nineveh. You see, the reason Jonah didn't want to go is because he knew the Ninevites would believe God, or if they did believe God, they would repent, and then God wouldn't judge them. And Jonah wanted God to punish them. How's that for loving? He didn't want to go say, repent, or judgment is coming. He eventually did obey God went and proclaimed that they better repent. They did. And the Ninevites somehow knew what happened to Jonah of being swallowed by a great fish for three days and nights. That was a sign to them that he was a a prophet of God. And the thing about the Ninevites is they were Gentiles who believed God. And here are the Jews, the very people of God And they will not believe God. So that whole thing that happened to Jonah is an Old Testament picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we're studying the Old Testament. The Old Testament, we might say, prepares the way for Jesus to come. The New Testament declares that he's already come. So all of those proclamations, the prophecies, the promises... The pictures, they are preparing for Jesus to come. Romans 1.14, Paul said that Jesus is declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It was the resurrection that verifies who he was. So the question is, as we're studying God's word, do you believe it? it can't get any more simple than that. Well, I don't know. I've read this interpretation and I've read this. I can find so many excuses not to believe God's word. When really the plain read reading is pretty plain. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. I don't need 10 translations, 10 modern translations to try and figure John 3:16 out. Don't sin and don't be an idiot. Amen. So you tell your child, wait out front after school. I will be there to pick you up. And your child says, oh, I don't know if I can believe what you're saying to me. I'm going to need some kind of proof. You're laughing because we do that to God, don't we? Lord, help me know I can really believe you. What if you needed $100 to buy groceries and, you, and I said, Look, I'm going to write a check right now. This dates us, uh, say it was 20 years ago. I'm going to write a check right now and put it in the mail. Would you suddenly stop worrying about it and go, Okay, the money's on the way? The answer is yes, because you would believe me, because I'm so awesome and so reliable. If any family member says, look, I'm going to send you $1,000 to pay your rent. You would relax. The checks in the mail. So we need to just learn to believe God's word. Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We believe God's word. As the rest of this chapter moves on. Jesus begins to tell them because they won't believe how it's affecting their lives. And there's something interesting that happens when we repeatedly hear God's word and reject it. We hear God's word and reject it over and over. We're unwilling to believe or unwilling to repent when it's clear that our heart begins to be more and more calloused. And what calluses do is it makes you unable to feel. When I was uh, many years ago in the last century, I was a gymnast and I did all the events, but especially loved high bar parallel bars and uh, would build up calluses on my hands. So that I could work the bars. And have tough skin. And our heart becomes calloused. And it's strange how we think we start to feel okay with sin or we start to feel okay with a, a bad attitude about something. And we start to think, well, I'm okay with that. Well, that's dangerous when you start to be okay with something that is blatantly wrong. Or even many, maybe years ago, you, you, you would have a, a guilty conscience over it. And the more you did it, the more you did it, the more you started to be okay with it. And that's what's happening to the Jewish leaders. The more they see Jesus works and the more they conspire against him to say, this is not the Messiah. It begins to darken their hearts even more. The Old Testament picture of that. Would be Pharaoh every time Moses would stand in front of Pharaoh and say, let my people go. It would say the scriptures would say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Moses does that over and over again, nine times. And then the 10th plague, it says. That. Pharaoh hardened his heart in that last plague, but it uses a different word for hardened the first nine times. It's a word that means that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but on that last time, it's a different word. And it means that God hardened his heart. Have you ever heard somebody be critical of the Bible and they say, well, that was unfair because it says, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. No, actually all it means was that God confirmed the condition that Pharaoh had chosen. He chose it. And finally God says okay if that's what you want. I am going to harden your heart. I'm going to fix your heart in that condition. And it's happened to the Jewish leaders as well. So Jesus says in verse 34 and 5. That the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore when your eye is good. Your whole body is also is full of light, but when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore take heed that the light which in, is in you is not darkness. So he begins to be critical, and in these last verses, beginning at verse 39, I'm just going to summarize seven corrections that Jesus gives warnings to them about this darkening, darkening condition of their hearts. First one, he warns them actually that their heart has become unclean. Verse 39, he says now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and darkness. Now the setting has shifted a bit and a Pharisee actually invited Jesus to come to his house to eat. According to You know, custom and their following of traditions, they would obsess about washing the hands and ceremonial washings. Jesus sits down at the table and didn't wash his hands. Moms, I know that's a that's a big violation in your house, but especially and Jesus knows that this Pharisee is being critical of Jesus for not washing his hands. And so Jesus picks up on that and says, look, you obsess about the outside of the cup. But what about the inside of the cup? Your lives, you obsess about the washing, washing the hands, all of these things. But what about your hearts? What about your hearts? And that right there sums up religion. Religion is obsessed with outward ceremonies and cleansings while the heart is unchanged. A second warning is that they for their lack of love and justice for people. In verse 42, he says, woe to you. That word, woe, we're going to read a couple of times. And woe means judgment. Woe to you, Pharisees. You tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. He's just making an observation. You're obsessive about they would tithe again. They would have their seeds or whatever it was and count out a tenth part and give it to God and just feel so spiritual because they followed the rules and yet they didn't love the people around them. So something is wrong here. We're so righteous and yet we neglect people. The third warning is that they would love prominence. The celebrity Pharisee. Verse 43, verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They love the best seats and synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They would love to be seen and greeted as rabbi and rabbi and just w- this whole thing of the celebrity pastor is not new. You can call me Terry. Not Reverend Terry, not Pastor Terry. Pastor Terry's fine, but Terry is fine. Hey, you is fine. Our job is to serve people, not use the ministry to be noticed. The more spiritual leaders get noticed, the sad thing is that the more people flock to some of those pastors just to be around them. And sometimes their celebrity is God, God done because God so uses some people that they become well known. And if that's what the Lord does, great. But often many pastors try and do it for themselves through branding and social media. And I got to write another book and get my name out there. And the justification is so I can have a, you know, a a bigger reach and reach more people. And it's, it's, it gets all fuzzy, doesn't it? Getting our names out there, getting our ministry out there. Why are we doing it? And so we always have to, to check ourselves. The main thing for the rest of us, common people don't get caught up in celebrity pastors. If they don't know they're only a servant, something's wrong. Let me say that again. If they don't know they're just a servant, something is wrong. As a young man, I confess I was guilty of getting caught up in the names in ministry. And that's often what happens in big revivals. There are the names. Somebody asked me the other day, "Did you know Pastor Chuck?" Yes, I knew Pastor Chuck, enough for him to say, "Stop being an idiot." I didn't know him, know him, but Chuck hated the idea of him being a celebrity and hanging on every word. But then there're others. There's always there's always people that God uses. So we, we common people, and I put myself in that camp, have to be careful To keep our eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Because those celebrity names will let you down every time. The fourth warning, we'll keep moving here. Is ultimately they were spiritually dead. They were spiritually dead. Verse 44, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen. And the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Number five, they burden people rather than lift the burdens. They burden people rather than lift burdens. Verse 46. Woe to you also lawyers. So those are the scribes, the the ones who would copy the scrolls and were really experts in the law of God. Woe to you lawyers For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Say, ouch, that hurts. Well, let me tell you, that is a sure sign of a dysfunctional ministry, and I see it a lot when I go out and do pastoral training. The church's job is to serve you, Not to be served. Uh, Those words are loud in my ears. And Pastor Chuck would say that to us. The church does not exist to be served. The church exists to serve. We're not getting you here because we need something out of you. Now, of course, we all contribute to being here. Me included. I tithe. I serve. I will pick up trash. I don't care. We're all here. We're all we're all serving together in the ministry. But we trust the Lord provides. The Lord is our provider ultimately. And When a often a named pastor starts viewing the people as workers to build up his kingdom, something is wrong. And I can spot that pretty fast. They burden people rather than lift the burdens off of people. Now, here's the thing. If I do my job and lift the burdens off of your life and help you just to trust the Lord, the response is what? What can I do? How can I help? So your service is really an evidence that I've done my job. Number six. Is that they honored their fathers who persecuted the prophets. They honor their fathers who persecuted the prophets. Verse 47 and 48. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Another day, we'll talk about how the Jews, as an overall culture, pictured themselves as people who loved the prophets of the Old Testament. They assumed that their generations before them listened to and loved Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all those prophets. There's 17 books of the prophets in the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. There's 17 history, five books of poetry, and then 17 books of prophecy. And the Jews assumed, well, they just loved those prophets. Absolutely. They killed them all. They persecuted them. Oh, what blinders we are able to put on our own eyes. But Jesus says, woe to you. For you have persecuted the prophets. And lastly. And this is probably the most dangerous one. In verse 52, they have actually hidden the word of God from the common people. They've hidden the word of God. Woe to you lawyers for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves and those who were, and those who were entering you hindered. My first job my, one of my main jobs is to teach you accurately the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, the whole counsel of God's word. But it's interesting how spiritual leaders will Not explain the word of God. Did you know that there were times in church history where having the scriptures in a common language that everyone could read was actually illegal? Actually, in the 1500s, it was illegal in England to have for the common people to have a translation of the the Bible in English. Because what happens is you might just read it for yourself and then church leaders feel like they're losing control. We can't have you just trust God on your own without us telling you what to do. That's a sure pattern of corrupt spiritual leadership. And so when various men started working to translate the Bible into a common language, they were persecuted for it. In 1536, William Tyndale, have you heard of Tyndale Publishers? There was a man named William Tyndale who worked to translate the Bible into a common English, and he was killed for it. God's word is intended to be plain. Now, of course, there's there's things we might go, I don't quite understand that. But that's all the more reason to read, read. Cross-reference, study, sit under a a good Bible teacher. And God desires just to help us come into a deeper relationship with the Lord. You know, to sum all of this up, to sum all of this up, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, That whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the goal. And if in any way we get in the way of that, we're doing something wrong. If a pastor or an elder or a Sunday school teacher is not serving that purpose, we're doing something wrong. And we talk about that in staff meetings and elders meetings. Are we getting the job done? Is there anything in our church we need to change to make this simpler and more effective for your children or for the men or for the women? What are we doing? And I fundamentally believe that my job is to do my job. And I pray that more and more people will come because they want this. And I believe that that is our primary work here in Albany is to keep it simple and for people to just see your lives. Something's changing as as people who know you can see that your marriages are stronger as your life is more at peace. You're not fearful and worried all the time. There is a new joy and a peace about your life. You are, as Paul would say about the Corinthians, you are our letters of recommendation to the community of Albany. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.